hey, hey. Welcome to episode 15 of the Creative Writing Podcast. I made this cool 80s song hoping that I could sing something to it about how crummy I felt. But guess what? I don't feel crummy anymore. Probably in no small part due to this song, but also because I uh, am highly medicated. I pump myself full of allergy meds, which uh, begs a question. Where the hell did El Nino go? El Nino, what happened to you, bro? You want to come on the show and explain what's happening? Did, did you crash? Did you wad it up in a turn and now you can't come to our state and wet us down? Anyway, all this dry, dusty, hot weather sandwiched in between crazy uh, torrential downpours has really been screwing with my sinuses for like the last, I would say, like three or four weeks. And uh, it's been terrible. So, yeah, I've been in the garage working on my motorcycle and my wife thought maybe there was some mold in the garage from the rain or something. But I think it's just, just this weather tends to happen to me every time that there's some uh, inclement weather and we go from dry to hot seasons. I started kind of getting affected a while ago, so I went to the store the next day and got some, I don't even know, Mucin-Sin or Mucinex or something, um, Mucinex. And yeah, voila, I can breathe today. I can talk today. I wasn't sure I was going to stick out a podcast. Um, And I'm sure you could hear it on the last few episodes. My nose has just been plugged for the last month. So hallelujah, baby. But yeah, El Nino, you're supposed to come and like wet all this dry, dusty stuff down. And flowers weren't technically supposed to bloom for like another few weeks. But you screwed us, bro. You screwed us. All right, let's get into this episode. Dude, this song is creeping me out like a Double Dragon soundtrack. If you ever played that video game back 3,000 years ago, when video games were something that you played at the corner store while you stood up. All right, now that you know I'm obviously a vampire, because I'm about 125 years old, let's get into a little bit of the show. Well, last week, uh, I kind of blabbered on a little bit about the Hurt Report. I didn't go too into depth, and as it turns out, there's a couple more reports than just the Hurt Report. And in the show notes, you might have said that we start out with your chain and we end up with your death. Well, what I didn't cover was the death part of that. Not to freak anybody out, but uh, yeah, so what I was referring to was um, if you went to that page in the show notes um, and a quick tangent, I'm sorry that the iTunes description doesn't have hot links in it uh, that you can click to straight from uh, my show notes there if you're looking at it on your iPhone or iPod or whatever. But the place that I enter my RSS feed doesn't support um, HTML, so I can't put like reference links in there. You have to go to my web, the web page where I post the podcast to get all the proper show notes with all the hyperlinks and stuff that link out to hot. Whatever link out to hot means. But anyway, yeah, the thing I did not reference was the fatal two-vehicle motorcycle crash study specifically done using the FARS data, which is the fatal accident reporting system or something like that. And uh, so, yeah, they, they had a bunch of crashes in 2005. And 
in September of 2007, NHTSA uh, released another report that had analyzed all this data from the motorcycle um, specific crash trends. And basically, here's what they found out about motorcycles. And I'm sorry, I didn't tell you this on the last episode. Uh, what happened was three fourths, almost three fourths, so the two vehicle motorcycle crashes uh, involving a motorcycle and a passenger vehicle. The motorcycle was the striking vehicle, and I don't know how many times I've been looking, <clears throat> excuse me, sinuses again. I don't know how many times I've been looking on the internet recently and seen dudes not splitting lanes, but it happens when you do that, but also just like hauling ass down the street. And uh, it doesn't always have to be someone turning left in front of you and you hit them. I just seen guys like doing wheelies on the freeway, and they're looking at their buddy doing a wheelie, and then all of a sudden, the camera goes back straight and boom. And it's like, right as they're hitting a car, like, dude, you have zero peripheral vision or you're so focused on doing this wheelie and watching your butt, like making sure you're focusing on your friend, getting him in the frame of your, you know, where your head's looking that you're not looking. I mean, I don't know. Doing wheelies on the freeway in the first place is pretty stupid, but, um, you know, if you're going to do it, watch where the hell you're going. So a lot of times these vehicle strikes happen partially due to the other car, but a lot of the times it was the motorcycle. And to segue into that thought, alcohol among the motorcycle uh, operators was 2.5 times the alcohol involvement of the passenger vehicles. And other guys that tested positive for alcohol, 69% of them were above uh, 0.08, which is illegal in all states. So... Yeah, um, 24% of of the motorcyclists killed um, had an invalid driver license compared to only 8% of the passenger vehicles. And 27% of those killed were speeding compared to only 4% of the uh, passenger vehicles. So we're talking about even if you did have a car turn left in front of you, uh, if you did it at the pro- at the speed limit, I've seen plenty of guys from, if you just watch any footage from Russia, uh, they got the craziest stuff happening over there. You'll see guys do like full flips over cars, fly about 50 feet through an intersection over a car, land on their feet or like do a judo roll and come up and start cussing. So that's what happens when you crash at a uh, speed limit unless you're on the freeway, you know, what happens when people turn left in front of you and you're doing 60 in a 25 or a 35 is totally different. And at that point, I guess it would depend on what gear you have on and what you hit after you fly over. So when they compared the stats of head-on and rear-end collisions, 55% of the head-on collisions, the motorcycle was the striking vehicle. And in 68% of the rear end collisions, the motorcycle was the striking vehicle. So it just tells you that, like, here we are preaching to everybody about how they should get off their cell phone and we should be able to split lanes and, you know, people should watch out for bikes and all this shit. And then, you know, you haul up behind, ass behind somebody doing 90, 95 miles an hour. And then when they change a lane doing like 70, you smash into the back of them. It's their fault somehow. Okay, I want to get off the reporting and all that great stuff and get back into the technical stuff that we started with last week. 
my goal with this is to give you some technical information that might help you if you're rebuilding or building a bike or maybe doing a resto or just having problems it, maybe along the lines of replacing you know some bearings or you're trying to redo your forks not quite sure how to do it so uh, or the problems that it can cause if you don't take care of something that you see going wrong. So I just kind of figured I'd start uh, at the bottom, do a ground up. So we're going to continue with tires right now. And eventually in a few weeks, we'll be up at the head and helmet area. And I last week we talked about uh, tire wear. We kind of covered chain adjustment. We didn't really, but, you know, it was enough talking about... Uh, more more so talking about aligning your wheel, using your chain, um, getting the wheel straight in there. And your chain really doesn't take much more adjustment than uh, making sure that there's adequate amount of play from, you know, just read your service manual. And so we didn't talk about actually what it takes to put on a tire or take off a tire. So let's get into that a little bit. And I, I know I pointed out the fact that uh, on your sidewall, there's a little uh, molded right into the side is the birthday of it. And I know that I showed you or talked about the TWI, which is the tire wear indicator, which is a little bar molded into the sipes. And uh, I didn't tell you there's one more thing that's usually on a tire when you look at it besides the size and the, and the air pressure and all that stuff that it recommends. And that is there's usually a colored dot. Sometimes it's blue. I think I've seen it yellow sometimes. Um, so I'm going to tell you what that is useful for here in a minute. We're going to talk about uh, removing tires. Playing with tires is a little bit like playing with your lover. You need to get them warmed up beforehand. Always use a little lube and a little protection. Do a bit of prying and pulling in the right places and voila, baby. Mutual satisfaction and smiles all around. Or you can go in like a sadomasochist, cold rubber intertwined with a bunch of random metal. No protection, no lube, scratching like a feral cat. Getting beat by and beating on smelly black rubber and two sweaty hours of screaming and frustration later, you will have achieved the same results. But like BDSM, you both may be a little sore for a while afterwards. So here's the correct way to change out those rubbers, babe. All right, the first thing you want to do is get some heat into those tires. And I wasn't kidding about warming up your little sweethearts before you throw them in. The more heat you can get into your tires before you change them, the more supple they will be and a little bit more pliable. So what you need to do uh, is to get your tires hot, your new ones and your old ones. So go ahead and while you're taking your old ones off, set your new ones out in the sun. And if you're somewhere cold or you're doing this over the winter, maybe set them in front of a heater or even use a heat gun before you... uh, are removing your old ones and before you're putting your new ones on. So we'll mention that again in the uh, installation steps. So your old tires, once you got a little bit of uh, heat on them, hit them with a hairdryer even, you want to squirt some lube around the bead area. For those of you that are not familiar with tires yet, but you're trying this out for the first time, the bead is the area of the tire that actually contacts and seals with the rim, whether you have spoked wheels or not. 
So getting some dish soap in a squirt bottle will work just fine. Dish soap is very slick. And you want to squirt uh, around the edge, the first edge that you're going to be working on. And dish soap might dry out if it takes you a while, so keep the bottle nearby so you can keep squirting as necessary. The next thing you're going to want to do is to get your handy-dandy tie irons. And I cannot stress to you enough to buy some quality. I've got some Motion Pro spoons, and I've used about three other types of tie irons before. And I have to say the Motion Pros are the best. They're not expensive. They're handy. They come in perfect uh, ergonomic forms, which means that it doesn't hurt your hands and you can put something else on it if you need more leverage. So I have some that are really long and they're really great, but the ends are terrible. And I think I may have even torn up a tube or once or something trying to, uh, get a tire off before. So yeah, just pay, you know, throw some money at these motion pros and see how they work for you. I'm not sponsored by motion pro either. So just to get that out of the way. So before you can start using these tire spoons, you got to break the bead. And there's a couple ways to do this. You can buy a bead breaker. I think this is probably one of the only tools from Harbor Freight that it's probably you could invest in and call it wise. And what a bead breaker is, is it's anything that can put pressure on the bead portion of the tire whilst uh, simultaneously holding it in place, holding the wheel in place. So... It's hard to do. You, I, I've seen somebody do it with a spoon before, and they it actually didn't look like it was that hard. Uh, they were they'd probably done it a few times before, so they were a little bit skilled. And there are certain tire spoons that come with a bead breaker built in, where it has like a little interlocking. You have two spoons; they interlock, and one of the edges has like a little um, lip on it that pushes down on the bead. So if you don't have these specialized spoons and you don't have a Harbor Freight bead breaker, uh, anything that can put some leverage there on the bead, aside from stomping on it, because I wouldn't want to ruin your rim, um, I've seen somebody online uh, in England drive their car over the tire. Now, you don't want to drive over your rim. You just want to press on the tire. So what they did is they sat their rim on the ground with the tire just right where the car tire is. And he was, you know, obviously monitoring the whole time, looking out the window. He drove over his tire with his car and it was enough to press it right off the bead on both sides simultaneously. So that was really cool. Uh, Another thing I've seen is that somebody rigged up sort of a lever system that actually bolted to one of the two by two by fours in their garage. And there was an arm that came out and a two by four that went down. And all they did is, uh, you know, the two by four that came down, they put it on the bead and the arm that was coming out of the two by four in the garage, they just pushed their body weight on that and it broke the bead. So that's really all you got to do is you just got to separate the tire from the wheel. Unless you're Hulk Hogan or the actual green Incredible Hulk. You won't be able to do it by hand. The next step is getting the tire off the wheel. And this can be one of the most frustrating parts. And if you're the sadomasochist that I mentioned, then this is going to be awesome because you're just going to try to get in there and horse this thing off. And we'll see who's got more go, you or the tire. Stamina goes a long way in this in this case, baby. If you get a little bit of heat into the tire, you may be able to uh, have it 
be a little bit less rigid, and this is definitely where you're going to need the lube and protection. If you don't use anything to cover the edge of your rim, it's likely that you're going to put a little bit of a mark in it. And if you use crazy heavy industrial Chinese tire irons like I did the very first time I ever changed a wheel, you're going to leave uh, the brand name of the tire iron indented into the side of the wheel. There are several companies that make little U-shaped pieces of plastic that basically slide over the lip of your wheel where the tire spoon interfaces so that it doesn't scratch it. If you have real shitty wheels or you just have a piece of cardboard or something, that'll work. If you if you don't care about marking, then don't worry about this. Or if you're in a pinch and it's an emergency situation and you're out in the wilderness and you're not really concerned about cosmetics at this point, then don't worry about it. So squirt a bunch of that lube around the lip of the tire and then work your tire spoon underneath where you've broken the bead off and the first part should go easy. You work the tire spoon in and you pop the tire up onto the lip there. Now that part's going to be easy. Once you got the tire worked over the bead, the bead of the tire worked over the uh, lip of the rim, it should pretty much be able to come off by hand. You should be able to slide your hand in the tire now and pull it off the rest of the way. Now you're going to need to do this again to get the what was the outer lip of the other side off of this side as well. So now that you know what you're doing, it should be a little easier. And it might be hard to get that first uh, spoon to grab now that you're basically working on the outside of the tire uh, and trying to force it off. But once you get it, you'll have enough leverage to pop it off. And sometimes at this point, just getting that first spoon underneath there, you can pull the tire off by hand. All right, now that you got your tire off, it's time to put your valve stem in if you don't have uh, tube tires. And this is the exciting part, putting the new tire on. What you're going to want to do is basically the same thing that you did to get the tire off, but in reverse. And as you'll see, there's a few little tricks to help along the way. To start off with, usually on your tire, there's a little dot somewhere. And you want to line that up with the valve stem. I think that they put that on the lightest part of the tire. So that's a, a good indicator of uh, where, to, where your valve stem should be, is where this dot on the tire is. There's also going to be, usually if you have a directional tire, that it'll there'll be an arrow pointing which way it's supposed to rotate. Don't be a douche and put your tire on backwards. So make sure you're looking at it uh, and line up your tire with the directional arrow pointing the right way. Now, I would recommend putting your wheel down on something soft on the ground, maybe even your old tire, um, just because you're going to want to use a little bit of body weight here to hold the tire in place as you click it on, and you're not going to want to scratch your sprocket or your brake discs if you didn't bother to take them off. So with your uh, tire now, uh, with the arrow going in the right direction and the dot on the tire uh basically lined up with where the valve stem is, you're going to want to lube your tire up again. Squirt your little dish soap and water mixture around the tire. And you should be able to push the first bead over by hand. Just push down and work it around until the, be uh, the tire pops over the lip of the rim. Now, use your knee to push the tire down 
into the rim, into the channel of the rim. And then what you're going to do is you're going to put your tire spoons roughly at 10 and 2. You should be able to push the tire somewhat on, let's just say, probably about 30% on, maybe 40% on uh, with your hands or knees working it around the rim uh, to hold it in place. And the remainder of the way, you're going to want to put your uh, rim protectors at 10 and 2, get your uh, tire irons on there and get them uh, to pop the lip on. And once you get that on, uh, you get it. Once you get the tire over the edge of the rim, use one tire iron to hold the tire in place. Because as you try to push the tire on one side, it's going to try and pop out on the other side and you're going to chase it around and around and around and around if you're not smart enough to hold this in place with your knee. So uh, I think I've seen some tire irons that might even have some little gimmick or device where you can hook it to keep it holding it in place while you use the other tire iron. But I, I don't remember. Um, so hold, hold one, the one tire iron down with your knee, we're going to call that the anchor iron. And with the other iron move little by little around the rim, popping it, uh, the tire over the lip. Now don't, you're going to want to be tempted to do this in like two, you know, two movements, and it's not going to work. It's going to be a lot of frustration. And at this point, you're going to see that your tire looks, you know, it's going around the rim. And then all of a sudden, it's flat across the top. And sidewalls are really stiff on these uh, tires that you're installing. So don't be tempted to do too big of a, um, a section of tire when you're working it back over the rim. So little by little, inch by inch, just start working that tire over the lip of the rim and you should finally get it. The closer you get to your anchor uh, iron, you know, you'll be working it toward there and it should pop on within the last few inches. That's what she said. Anyway, now it's time to pop on the beads. And I'm not talking your fifth anniversary beads, baby. I'm talking about the beads to your tire. So here's what we're going to do. What you, you're just going to squirt a little bit of your uh, soapy mixture on both sides of the tire and then go ahead and inflate that baby. And you will hear the bead pop on. Something like that. And if you have a tire with a tube in it, uh, it you should also feel it or hear it seat on there uh, as you inflate the tube. I've never had a tube tire popped on the bead like a tubeless tire does, but you'll still, f you'll kind of know when it notches in there. Okay, before I get into mount uh, balancing the tire, I want to tell you some tricks and tips. If you don't have um, tire irons, I suggest that's one of the you know, if you're not going to do tires all the time, but that is one thing that you want to invest in. You don't necessarily need a bead breaker and all that fancy stuff or a bead buddy and all these other things that they make to hold uh, the, your tire on the bead or to pop the bead off. But tire irons is one thing that really you're going to thank yourself later, even if you only do tires, you know, once every couple of years. So if you don't have that stuff available, though, and you're in a pinch or you're poor and you haven't got your uh, tire irons yet, 
You can use zip ties. You can use uh, flathead screwdrivers. You can use pry bars. And the zip tie method sounds kind of funny, but I saw that uh, on YouTube a while back where this guy didn't have tire irons. So what he did was he, you know, after letting all the air out, and another little trick is if you want to let the, all the air out of your tire, you could get a core tool, which is like a little um, fork tool looking thing that takes your valve stem all the way out. So it's just like an empty shaft. Or you can use a really small um, flathead screwdriver to kind of do the same thing and just back the uh, valve core out until it's it uh, is unscrewed. So the zip tie method that I saw online was that uh, the guy got his uh, valve core out and he got his tire loose enough, I guess, so that he could slide a, z- a big industrial strength zip tie underneath his tire and tube. And or, I actually, I think he had a tubeless tire. So he just had to slide it underneath the tire and wrap it around t- and tighten it and pull it tight. And I think he used, a, you know, he squeezed it. Maybe he stepped on it and pulled it tight. Who knows? But then he slid another one in right next to it. And after about five of those, he got it pretty darn tight and then he uh went back and tightened the first one then he scooted down a couple inches and did the same thing again two or three of them together real tight and scooted down two or three inches did a couple more you know real tight and i don't know how many he used to get it off but he had them every few inches around the tire and basically what it does is it squeezes uh, both beads together and at that point, he, he just could slip it off the rim without having to use pry bars to get it off. He used a little bit of elbow grease, but I mean, it didn't just pop right off, but it was, uh, <clears throat> he did not have to pry it off. And then uh, he slipped it back on the same way. So that's one trick you can use. And as far as the rim protectors go, uh, you can use an old piece of carpet. You can use a piece of cardboard. Um, you could probably use a piece of old automotive molding that has a channel cut in it already. Anything that's going to just go on the rim, uh the edge of your rim so that the tire irons don't actually touch it and scuff it up or scratch it or dent it. So that being said, let's balance your tire now. All right, if you don't have a tire stand, they make balancing stands that are basically look like a track stand with an axle coming out of it. You could use your axle. You could put a, a dowel in a vise. You could make all sorts of things. All you need is something for your wheel to freely spin on and make sure it's uh, parallel to the floor. Once you get your wheel set up on that thing, and hopefully you've uh, scraped the wheel weights off of your existing wheel, You can buy new ones. They're adhesive, and they usually come in like, um, I want to say, a gram measurement. I think they've come in ounces or grams. I'm not sure. So, yeah, you want to stick your tire on here with no wheel weights or anything like that. And just let your tire go. Spin it slightly. Don't spin it like uh, the price is right or the wheel of fortune, or you're going to be sitting there for three hours waiting for it to slow down. You just want to give it the slightest of touches. And as it turns, the heaviest part should go down to the bottom. You're going to go 180 degrees to that and put a wheel weight. Wheel weights are usually adhesive, so just pull it off just enough to stick it to the wheel. And now turn your wheel 90 degrees. So 
As the heaviest part of the wheel dropped down to the 6 o'clock position, you put the weights at the 12 o'clock position. And once you have the weights on there, like I said, just enough, turn it to like 9 o'clock and let the wheel go. And if it starts to drop, you put too much weight on there. If it starts to rise, you didn't put enough. So I would start out with two or three weights to begin with and go from there and just keep adding or subtracting until the wheel stays in the middle and doesn't move. At that point, if you're real anal, you can get some tape that's the same color as your wheel and tape it so they don't fly off, but they're they're pretty sturdy. They should stay on. If you have an off-road tire, <clears throat> pardon me, an off-road tire or a dirt bike tire, you might have some different procedures, like you might have a rim lock um, you might have, I don't know if you have a tube, a good tip is to put some talcum powder inside the tire so that it doesn't chafe the tube. And, uh, there's a couple of tricks and tips that you can uh, find out usually, uh, by going to everyone's favorite instructional, uh, site, youtube.com. That's basically tire changing in a nutshell. And as I've described it here is about as how long it should take you to change it. Um, if you have the correct tools, if not, uh, come back in about an hour and listen to this and you should be done with one side. All right. Before I go on to the next thing, let's do a little bit of news with honey buns. I'm sure you're sick of hearing me talk about a tire for the last half hour. All right, honey, take it away. 2016 is the hundredth anniversary of Augusta and Adeline Van Buren's ride across the United States on motorcycles. An honorary event called the Sisters Centennial Motorcycle Ride will take place from July 3rd through the 24th. It will honor and celebrate the courageous and unprecedented journey that the sisters made, as well as celebrate our female motorcycling heroines of the past. As we promote the growth of women motorcyclists and the motorcycling community. In 1916, the Van Buren sisters were the first women to cross the continental United States and were also the first to reach the summit of Pikes Peak, each on her own motorcycle. They were inducted into the AMA Hall of Fame in the early 2000s. Find more information about the ride at sistersmotorcycleride.com. Team Canada Motorcycle of Nations Fundraiser is February 24th, 2016. It takes countrywide support from the community to get our team in um, Magoria, I'm going to say Italy, on September 25th and 26th. You can do your part and have a chance to win a choice of three terrific prizes. One is a trip for two to the Monster Energy Cup in Las Vegas, flights, hotel, and tickets to the cup. Or number two, $5,000 of cold hard cash. Or number three, a full week package at the Parts Canada TransCan at Walton, Ontario. That includes your entry fees, camping, travel trailer rental, shipping for your bike, and your rental car. Just $100 gets you a raffle ticket and eligibility to win one of these great prizes. E-transfer to Heather at results.cma at bellnet.ca and we'll get your ticket off to you. For details, visit www.canmocycle.ca. 
Some old news. Last December in the UK, motorcycle clubs stepped in to deter looters from targeting flood-hit homes and businesses in Calderdale Valley regions. From the Guardian UK, nighttime patrols of Hebden Bridge and the Mythelmroyd are being carried out by bikers who have come from Bradford and beyond to help with the blessing of police. We saw people post on Facebook that they were trying to d- deter looters, and I thought, who better to do that but 20 to 30 burly bikers, said Dave Curris of the Drifters MCC, who has been organizing the patrol with his motorcycle club chairman, Lloyd Spencer. The pair said they had been overwhelmed by the response from other clubs. I'm going to apologize to those MCCs if I pronounce their names wrong right now, including the Pirates MCC, Broken Bones MCC, and Nuntime Mortis MCC, and had been out for the past two nights. More than 30 bikers are expected to gather on Tuesday night to keep a watchful eye into the early hours. Lloyd Spencer, who runs the Northern Pub on Bradford's Halifax Road, said the bikers in their leathers and hoodies, and most standing more than six feet tall, might look intimidating to would-be looters, but had been welcomed by the local community, who kept them topped up with hot tea and chip buddies. <laughs> Suzuki and VW officially split after more than a year of souring relationship problems. Sounds like a teenager in your household. VW bought a nearly 20% stake in Suzuki in 2009 and was ordered to sell it back in August 2015 after the relationship began to sour as early as 2014. The deal started out as a perceived benefit for both groups as VW hoped to gain access to Suzuki's Indian market segment and Suzuki hoped to use some of VW's advanced technology for their own development. As part of the settlement, Suzuki was ordered to pay VW for not honoring its agreement to use the German company's diesel engines. Given the current state of affairs, I guess you can say that Suzuki dodged that bullet. In other automotive news, Ken Block released another Gymkhana video and no one cared. Well, 6 million viewers tuned in to watch him drift and jump his custom Ford vehicles. These videos are getting to the point where we would much rather see him jump an actual shark. And in racing, Davis Fisher will join Brad the Bullet Baker as a factory Harley-Davidson rider this season for the AMA Flat Track Series. Fisher and Baker were the main attraction during the 100-lapper main at the 4th League Flat Track event in Del Mar, California about a month ago. I have to interrupt Honey at this point and say it's the Ivy League Flat Track. It stands for the Imperial Valley League, but she's not the first person to make that mistake. It's just pretty easy to do, considering that the Roman numeral four is IV. All right, back back to the news with Honey. Remember, Daytona kicks off this weekend. If you're going for the racing instead of the action on Main Street, remember that the Daytona International Speedway just underwent a $400 million facelift. Only, it didn't get more seats. That means hot dogs and beer prices will be through the roof. Better hold the mustard and stick to bottled water. In miscellaneous news, Motorsports Newswire. Indian Motorcycle, America's first motorcycle company, today today announced the new 2016 Indian Springfield. Named after the birthplace of Indian Motorcycle and designed for a pure riding experience. 
The Indian Springfield is a soulful and versatile new addition to the 2016 lineup. It features true, authentic American craftsmanship, superior refinement, and only the most essential touring features for the ultimate in open-road touring without distractions. Inspired by the rich heritage of Indian motorcycle, the Indian Springfield offers classic style styling blended with thoroughly modern technology for a purist take on both touring comfort and urban versatility. It's official. It's official. The little green competitor to the Grom that we posted last October on creativewriting.com is coming to the U.S. in 2017. The Grom competitor, or Grompetition as we'll call it, is going to don the title Z125 Pro. And as of now, look to beat the Grom's price by a few hundred bucks. That's all. I'll tell you what, that's the last time I let Honey record the news in a children's sweatshop. Uh, That was a lot of background noise, and maybe we'll just have her come here to do the news next time rather than phoning it in, baby. Speaking of phoning it in, uh, don't forget the Solstice Slam is taking place in just four more episodes, folks. This is 15, so you've got 16, 17, 18, and 19 to record something and send it to us at creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com. We'll remind you again at the end of the show, but don't forget... All right, why don't we get into a little bit more tech uh, stuff, and while we're doing the wheels here, or the tires, let's talk about wheels, because let's say you're rebuilding your sweet-ass cafe racer, and you got your brown seat on there, and you got your natural grips, and your inverted mirrors, and... uh, What's this wobble in the front end? Well, it's your wheel bearing, my friend. Or my wheel won't align. Like, uh, I tried the stringing thing and it's all wobbly in the back. Well, that's your rear wheel bearings. So, how do we fix these? Well, scrape together a few pennies and get yourself a... One of the bearing... um, It's a bearing race and seal driver kit. That's what it's called. And... um, yeah, those is, that's an actual piece of hardware that you could buy from Harbor Freight and not feel bad about it. It's basically a bunch of machined aluminum discs that helps you drive in seals and bearings without ruining them. Uh, since these are essential part of mechanical movement, it's important to not just ham fist them and not to wham on them with things that you should not be whamming on anything with. So... Let's say you got your wheel off and you just put your new tire on as outlined in the first half of this, uh, whatever this thing's called. Is this a podcast still? Yeah. All right. So now you're looking at your bearings and you notice that they're kind of cruddy looking and whatnot. So, okay, let's check them out. Well, they usually have an oil seal around the bearing and... To get the seal out, if you can't just use your finger and do it, uh, you could use a flathead screwdriver. You could even use uh, tire irons or a tire spoon to pop the seal off. Do it carefully because you don't want to, if it's good still, you don't want to ruin it. But if you're getting a new bearing set and it comes with it, or you notice that it's real shitty and you're going to replace it, don't bother coaxing it. Just, you know, rip it out of there. Uh, don't use dynamite. I know in Australia they use dynamite for every... No, oh, Vegemite. That's right, Vegemite. All right, so 
once you got the seals off, sometimes the bearings will just slide out or pop out. I know on some of the wheels that I have, they will. They'll just, you know, they're not pressed in, so they are free to come in and out. And it's it's very convenient and it's very nice. But on other ones, they're basically pressed or driven in pretty hard. On those type of wheels, sometimes you can heat the hub up with like a little torch um, get a little flame on it and just do that for a few minutes and it'll make the metal expand, which will make the bearing easier to pop out. You're still going to need to pop it out somehow. And, uh, a lot of times you can tap it out with a punch. What I do is, uh, I have an old extension that broke off. And so basically it's just a really nice sized tube that goes, or pipe, it's a solid uh, piece of metal and it can go inside of really small areas and it still has got enough of a lip on it to catch. So I'll put, I'll slide it through and gently working around the bearing, I'll tap it out. And you don't want to hit only one part of the bearing because that's going to cock it sideways and that's going to ruin your wheel. And not only will it ruin your wheel, but it'll, you know, it'll bind the bearing in there and it'll make it really hard to get it out. So make sure you work around in a circle as you're tapping the bearing out at the least top, bottom, top, bottom, top, bottom. Sometimes if you can get the spacer, it'll cock itself out of the way so that you'll have access to the bearings. Uh, Other time it's the exact same size as the bearing So it's going to be a little bit harder to move it out of the way, but you should be able to move it down to gain access to the back of the bearings to drive them out with the punch. Now, once you get everything out, remember how it went in and um, always use new bearings with a new seal and use a bearing driver and uh, heat up the hub again before you drive them in because it's going to do the same thing as when you're pulling them out, it's going to just allow them to go in a little bit smoother without as much force and without as much um, possibility of wrecking them. So heat it up again and you can use the old bearings or if if you don't have uh, this driver set, um, you can use a socket that's the exact same size as the bearing. And because you don't want to wham on the in, okay, the bearing, you're going to see an inner ring and an outer ring. These races uh, are important. And then there's like an inner uh, seal part or like a clip part. And you definitely don't want to hit on that because that's def- that's touching the bearings. So you want to get a socket that's exactly the same uh, diameter as the outer ring of the bearing, like the the bearings diameter basically and you can use that to wham it in and that's not going to hurt it because obviously the socket is hollow on the inside it's not going to be touching any parts of the bearing or the little center race where the axle slides through really important not to mangle that stuff because you're taking a brand new bearing and ruining ruining it if you do Um, so yeah, once you get all that home, you drive the bearings home, you could use a piece of PVC pipe even, uh, if you needed to. And, you know, PVC pipe is one of those things that comes in various inner and outer diameters. And it's really easy. If you know, if you're going to be doing your bike over and over, you can get a chunk of that. That's the right size and just keep it around handy. And the seals, same thing, drive them in something flat over them. Uh, and if, if you go and get one of these bearing driver sets, you'll see the, the seal drivers and the bearing drivers are very, very, very flat because they don't want to, 
they want the pressure distributed evenly and they don't want it uh, like basically a, any um, isolated pressure or force struck against any of these pieces because it'll ruin them. It'll bend them. And so the seal wrap that baby on and put a little bit of water-resistant grease around it and voila. And don't forget to, when you're reinstalling the seals, don't forget to put that spacer back in there. Without that spacer, your bearings are doomed because basically once you tighten it, it's pulling the bearings. Uh, the outsides of the bearings are trying to um, go meet each other in the middle on the inside. So you need that bearing spacer there. And that's why the bearing spacer is generally the same uh, diameter as the inside race for the bearings and roughly the, you know, same diameter as the axle since the axle slides through it. And, you know, you need a spacer in between there. Otherwise, your bearings are trying to pull to each other through the wheel because of the force from the uh, outside. So long story short, the space is there for a reason. Use it. All right. Well, that's pretty much it for uh, bearings and seals. And so now you know how to swap out your tire and put new bearings in while you're at it. Maybe next week we'll cover spokes and we'll go a little higher on the bike. We'll get out of the wheel area, even though, um, wheels are the most important wheels and tires. Cause that's what touches the ground and keeps you going in a straight line. So maybe we'll do Maybe we'll do spokes and brakes next or something, and then we'll get up into the suspension. Suspension ought to be fun. People devote their lives to learning suspension techniques, and here I'm going to tell you some stuff in, like, a stupid podcast that's not even an hour long. Hello? Is this thing still on? All right, well, I promised I wouldn't go over an hour. I'm probably going to anyway, but... uh, I just wanted to touch base on a few things that weren't in the news and that weren't really, um, I don't know, this week is kind of a blah week. I've been seeing a lot, I mean, it's the pre, it was the precursor to Daytona, but on the same hand, like uh, Mama Tried was last weekend, there wasn't really a whole lot going on nationally this week. So what I did notice was a lot of the motorcycle magazines and stuff were rehashing what they'd seen at Mama Tried and kind of talking about Mama Tried since not a whole hell of a lot went on this week and there's a couple weeks to fill before Daytona started. So same for me. Um, I did get some work done on my bike. I finally, after... Uh, I don't know, like two or three months, got the top end rebuilt on my little thumper. And why did it take so long? Well, because I'm a dad. And because, um, you know, what should take half an hour takes, you know, three months. (laughs) So um, that just happens sometimes. So for me, I was excited about that to get my bike uh, running after the last time I had ridden it. It was just spewing oil uh, all over and I thought you know I haven't done the gaskets on this thing forever so time to redo that so a couple other things came up in the news Um, one of them actually was pretty interesting I mentioned the two enthusiasts podcast a couple weeks ago and it's uh, I'm hit or miss with those guys because they do 
they tend to talk about some stuff that I don't, you know, I don't really care about. And, you know, I probably talk about stuff that nobody cares about. So who cares about that? Speaking of caring, I do care about what they said about the EPAs. Uh, I don't think it's a ruling yet. I think what they've done is they've changed the wording to some of their legislature and they're waiting to get a feel of public opinion before they make it official. The wording was... Uh, you need to go listen to the Two Enthusiasts podcast because uh, Jensen was an attorney in his past life, and I'm not sure if he still does consultations um, on the side now, but he is a pro at reading legal papers and he speaks legalese. So when he read the EPA filing, he really was able to um, parse it out and figure out exactly what they were saying. So if you want a detailed uh you know, a really in-depth look at what they're actually saying. You can listen to that podcast. And I will tell you just in brief here that what he was saying that they were putting into their rewording. First off, he was saying that the EPA assumed, since nobody's told them they didn't have any power, that they had like complete and utter power over the uh, ruling that be of the Clean Air Act. And basically, they have the final say in everything that governs this nation as far as emissions and clean air goes. All right. Well, what what the ruling basically says or what the rewording actually says is that it doesn't matter if it's a car or a motorcycle. If you have a vehicle that's going to have plates on it, you cannot modify the exhaust whatsoever. And the thing that they were talking about is because this has already been partially legislated in the past. And I mean, I keep up with some of this stuff for work a little bit, but not really in depth because um, I don't really need to know what the manufacturers deal with on a day-to-day basis. I need to know what comes out of the factory. So um, Ducati, uh, his sidekick, Quintanian was talking about how Ducati had to make a special pipe for California when they uh, manufactured the Panigale, I believe he said. And, you know, the California Air Resources Board, or CARB as they're more well known, is very, very anal. I remember I was so excited when I heard that Royal Enfield was finally going to be sold in California because California has some of the strictest emissions laws. And I have to say that living in L.A., uh, even in the 10 years that I've lived here, I've seen a big, big difference in how far down the freeway you can see. Uh, On a clear day, I can see the Capitol Records building in downtown now. And before, I was lucky to see three miles down the road. So even in 10 years, we've made giant leaps. But... What they're saying is that any vehicle um, that has a modified exhaust and a license plate, if you've modified the exhaust, you are breaking the law. And the big thing that they were worried about is because that applies to off-road bikes and track day bikes as well. Um, show bikes, show cars, not just let's not talk about bikes because cars are getting affected too. So you got your little autocrosser or your fast and furious racer and you put your coffee can exhaust on it. You have now broken the law. And I mean, it's going to be up to um, the local jurisdiction to bust you on it still. Sure. But federally, you are breaking emissions laws. Every time you take your bike and you rip off the canister, you're breaking the law, basically. And I mean, that's you 
I think it says right on it, you are violating federal law if you remove these emissions things. People don't pay attention anyway, so I don't know how much this is going to really change uh, the way people act. However, it will be retroactive to, um, I want to say, 2010 or 2012, something like that, maybe even as early as 2008. Eight. Uh, I he he didn't know the date either, and I can't remember the last emissions um, standard that I read. But I believe 2010 was the uh, year where a bunch of stuff from like 20, 2006 was going into effect. So that's probably when it grandfathers back to anything before 2010. You so much as do a cat back exhaust on your car. Um, you even touch the pipes or the emissions canister on your bike, and you're breaking the law. And the thing is, is that that means that you go to the track nowadays and you want to put a, you know, it doesn't matter the track. You just go to your, uh, you know, listen to any Harley or listen to any crotch rocket. And they have all basically got an aftermarket exhaust on them that I've heard. You know, you can tell when somebody's driving down the street on a Jixer and you don't hear anything. You're like, oh, stock pipes. Same with the Harley. If it sounds like a bubblegum machine and it's not doing the big rumble that's annoying, you could tell, you know, they got stock exhaust on there. So not only is a stock exhaust quieter, for some reason people hate them. And uh, the EPA is going to start laying down the law, which is here's what's going to matter to dealerships and stuff. And especially Harley. I have friends and family that work at Harley dealerships and the parts and accessories is a huge, huge deal to those guys. Shit, the Harley parts catalog, if you've ever picked one up, it's as big as an old phone book. And for those of you under 20 or 19 or whatever, a phone book is this thing that used to get delivered on your doorstep that weighed probably three pounds and it was about three inches thick. Um, that's about the, the Harley parts and accessories catalog. And now think of everyone else. The Yoshimura one is pretty big too. It's pretty fat. Um, I think I saw a Yamaha Star parts and accessories catalog recently, and it was pretty weighty. So all of these things, um, you know, the BMWs have been coming coming with um, Akrapovich pipes on them. Now those are for the factory, but they might not be. Uh, you know, they might not have the catalyzers and everything that a factory. Um, tailpipe comes with, and especially the S1000RR, that thing comes with the Kropovich pipes, and I believe the GSs come with the Kropovich pipes. A lot of their bikes come with this factory option. Now, you won't be able to get that factory option if this bill passes. If what they're saying is that you cannot modify the stock exhaust, even if the factory has an, has an option, in Harley's case, like almost every thing is an as a accessory option right um you won't be able to put that on so it's a big deal for for dealerships and it's a big deal for manufacturers and it's one more hurdle that they have to overcome in order to keep selling their vehicles and making people want their vehicles um i think it's interesting that jensen beeler said that his track day bike is a totally stock bike he could ride it to the track do laps and ride it home and i think that's great Another point that he brought up in a different post was uh, a feeling that I have shared. It's sort of an ambivalence toward clean air and cleaner burning vehicles. I remember when I first started riding motorcycles and I 
read a report that they actually were worse polluters. And the only reason that they were not considered worse polluters, and you don't have to smog them, at least here in California, is that they uh, were more efficient gas-wise. So that's why they're not considered um, gross polluters, is because you look at the basically the mile-per-gallon efficiency and the engine efficiency, and when you compared it to a car, they weren't gross polluters. Well, now that cars are getting much, much, especially with hybrid technology, cars are getting way, way better gas mileage. Uh, I don't think we can make the argument anymore that motorcycles are not gross polluters and cars for that matter. And that's why I always, I loved the hot rods that I grew up around. Everybody that I used to work with when I worked at a shop had some stinking souped up hot rod and just the sound of the V8 rumbling and riding in that thing. And uh, I don't know if you've never done it and you just, I don't know, you're missing out on a true experience there. And it's something that people took for granted back in the fifties and sixties and seventies, the eighties came in and the EPA just like smashed everything that was cool about vehicles. And we've been going with, uh, dealing with the uphill battle since then. So having said that, in a couple generations, they won't know what the rumble of a big engine is because I think we're going to be going electric. And if there's one great thing, it's that we're going to get cleaner vehicles and eventually the battery technology will be there that everyone's complaining about and and making the excuse of why they don't pull the trigger now. And in the future, when every vehicle is electric, uh, people won't be saying loud pipes save lives, you know, they'll be more aware of what's going on around them. I don't, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people argue for not going electric and it's like the, no, I don't like the noise. Uh, I, I need noise cause people don't know I'm coming if I don't have it, yada, yada. And, uh, Jensen Bueller did a very good post called, um, I don't, I don't remember ex- exactly the name of it. It was kind of like, the most sensible post that you're going to hate, you know, because it says basically that like, yeah, as a, as a motoring public, whether you're in cars or motorcycles, we should take into consideration that we don't want the world to be filthier. And, uh, you know, generations upon generation of people driving these stinky vehicles, you know, maybe we should be looking toward the horizon and trying to cut down on emissions. And I kind of agree with them. Who needs a fucking 300 horsepower motorcycle. You're never going to use that unless your name is Ghost Rider 666 and you're like trying to race from you know one side of Sweden to the next side in 3 minutes, you know what I mean? Um I could pro- I could do a track day on like a 50 horsepower bike and probably have just as much fun and kill myself just as easily as on one with like 280 horsepower. So I see a lot of bikes coming out of the factory now with the mission stuff on them doing, you know, close to 200 horsepower as it is. So I don't really see the need to put an aftermarket bunch of shit on there personally. And so that's why I'm ambivalent. I mean, I love the speed. I love the noise. I love the sound. Um, I think the EPA really needs to think about what they're doing though. And this is like a little bit of a, a bandaid on what is like a, a whole nother issue that they need to address, you know, as far as emissions. And when you think of emissions, think of VOCs. I mean, it's the reason like in California, why you can't use certain, everything's a water-based paint now. I mean, you, you know, 
there's a lot more things than just tailpipes that emit stuff. So, I mean, they're going to start cracking down on everything. But I just thought that was an interesting thing. You should be aware that maybe soon your aftermarket exhaust will be illegal if this wording doesn't change. And I can guarantee you SEMA, who is the specialty... God damn it. The Specialty Equipment Market Association... I think that's what SEMA stands for. Anyway, they're like one of the biggest um, trade shows for aftermarket stuff and exhaust being like one of the main ones. When you have an 800 horsepower Viper um, with straight pipes running at your show, you definitely are going to want to fight against the EPA ruling. And I think that's fair. I think if you're going to have, I mean, on one hand, your track day bike and your show bike. I mean, if it's running, it's not, it's not, doesn't matter if it's in the woods off the streets or, you know, driving through the city, it's still putting out the same amount of uh, emissions from the tailpipe. But if you're doing it for like an exhibition, uh, you, it seems like you get an exemption for that, especially if it's in something like SEMA where it's enclosed and only the people inside will be huffing the knocks that come out. I don't know. I don't know. I just wanted to to think about it myself and see if anybody else had any ideas on that because it sounds it does sound a little shitty until they come up with a better idea, you know. So, all right, another thing that uh, came up was the fact that Eric Buell Racing is going to start manufacturing bikes again. And we mentioned a few episodes ago that LAP bought them and they had planned on keeping, instead of, um, you know, dividing up the assets and selling it off, they did want to keep going and start production again. And yay for Eric Buell Racing. I happen to have an interesting uh, online talk with a listener about Eric Buell Racing. And um, he, was, he had written in initially, it started off, uh, we, he was joking about the hand, uh, hand signs, high fives, handkerchiefs, and handwriting <laughs> episode. And he was saying that, you know, he gives the peace sign and if people don't give it back to him, he points to their front tire frantically <laughs> like it's falling off or something. I thought that was pretty funny, but uh, he'd written me back and forth. His name's Paul. I've mentioned him a few times on the show and it's nice chatting with him because he has just got some super engaging questions and whatnot. And I don't remember how the uh, topic of Eric Buell came up, but uh, I think he mentioned something about Victory. And Victory has, uh, you know, they recently acquired Bramo. They got the Project 156. Um, They're basically going, you know, I think Victory, we're going to be seeing uh, some sort of sport bike out of them, or at least some sportier sections. And they are a American company. So, Um, I'm going to quote directly from his email. It says, another thing, I read an article a few months ago about a prototype sport bike that Victory put together. Why don't they back Eric Buell? And my response to that was, um, well, my coworker and I, we were just talking about Victory, and I really don't have any good reasons to dislike Harley except that they're a pain in the ass to work with. They think they own the cruiser world and everyone should bow down to them. And they axed Buell, right? And then um, 
you know, Polaris, they're making some big moves and I think Harley should watch out. And I really do think that Polaris is moving in now that they own Indian and now that they own Victory. And um, I'm super glad Polaris is another um, Wisconsin. No. Yeah. Polaris is another Wisconsin, I believe, factory. And um, so, I mean, they're uh, they're American and they own two American brands that are directly competing with Harley and they're making all these great moves. And Harley really hasn't changed their shit in quite a while. So I think Harley should, should watch out. So uh, to quote my email again, though, uh, I said, um, so Bramo thing was smart. Project 156 opened some new doors. The collaboration with Roland Sands and Indian just opened the doors for them in flat track. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I think it boils down uh, to what's going on in the near market future. And unfortunately, Buell is beat down in article after article as being a money vacuum. Uh, Polaris um, might look at him when American racing gets back into shape, which is what Buell wants to do. I think he wants to race, and that means expensive bikes to a niche market until Moto America and the economy in general get national road racing back on its feet. As far as backing Buell, that seems to come with a lot of baggage and dirty laundry. And uh, I'll go ahead and end my quote there. But yeah. Um, oh, this part's funny. Sadly, Buell's not getting any younger, and technology is not going to be rapidly changing in the next two years. He should start designing a kick-ass mobility scooter while he's still able to. So yeah, thanks to Paul for the um, super engaging uh conversation about that his his reply was i appreciate the counterpoint i like to formulate my opinions based on an article i read months or years ago or something else kind of random not necessarily on fact well paul sounds like you could be the producer for creative writing uh, i can tell you i base nothing on fact <laughs> it's all just random bs that i pull out of the air here based on things that probably 20 different things that i've seen countered contradicting each other and whatnot. So uh, that's what I base my stuff on. Don't don't believe a thing I say. Uh, anyway, yeah, it is it is interesting thing. And, and it's just funny because my coworker and I just happened to be uh, talking about it as well the same day that he shot me that email. And it's sad. You know, Buell was one of those guys that used to think outside the box. And unfortunately, now every single time he's done something is to go racing. And his bikes really aren't that sexy. You look at the 1190s, um, to me they look kind of weird because they're just like big pieces of body cladding. And he might be designing now for, I mean, maybe that works aerodynamically. Maybe he's tested it 53 billion hours in the old um, wind tunnel and it looks great. Uh, That SX, is that the one? Was that the kind of naked one, the 1190SX? Now, that one looked nice, but he's got to think about marketing it to people. It can't just be about racing because although, I mean, although it can just be about racing, that doesn't sell a hell of a lot of bikes to the general public. And taking on Buell right now, who's just been passed off and passed off and passed off as a bad penny over and over and over, terrible idea. Liquid Asset Partners, we'll see what they do with them. Maybe they'll be able to do something, and if they don't, we'll see... And in I mean, I guess in March, we'll just see how well people respond to uh, a Buell motorcycle. 
And I think it's a niche market. I think it's going to be like MV Agusta or something like that, where there's not a shit ton of them on the road and, or Bimotas even, you know? So I don't know. We'll see. And if that's the type of uh, bike that he wants to make and sell, good for him. But we're also at this point right now where American road racing is just eating shit. There's like zero Americans anywhere. Fortunately, we, uh, just last uh, last episode talked about Nikki Hayden being in World Superbike. Um, there's a couple Americans in World Superbike, but you know the premier level. You know there hasn't been Americans really at the top of the GP class since like the early '90s, I believe. That's excluding Nikki Hayden, who won in like what 2006 or something like that. But he's literally like. Pardon me, the last guy in this decade to have won for America. So, I don't know. It's just a, it's a disappointing state of affairs. The, the things that have gone on the last few years have, uh, I don't know, basically opened the eyes of, to people, I hope. And this is something I, I, I know I talked about it before, and I have not uh, got it into a show yet, but talking about support and wages and sponsorship and all that stuff. It all how it all ties together and even being a spectator, being a responsible spectator can help a series. And it's why Flat Track is gaining so much attention right now. And part part of that's the hooligan. And that's uh when we were talking when I was talking to uh, my coworker about Victory and the 750s the the Indian just got approval from the AMA to run the 750 race motor in the uh, the flat track series. So it'll be the first time since forever that Harley has seen an, another American V twin uh, come in and challenge it. So that's super super exciting. None of that would have happened had Roland Sands not got on uh to with the Scout 60 hooligan bikes and had flat tracking not taken off. And I have to say that uh Roland Sands partnering with Ivy League in 2014 2014 was their first year. Last year was their first full year and 2016 has just gone off with like even last year to this year has Ivy League has just like gone off the charts cuz 20 they started at the end of 2014. 2015 was their first real full season. And they had just got word of mouth stuff going and it's just this culture right now, this uh maker culture and uh people wanting to get out there and do stuff and not be, you know, you don't need to have a sponsored race team to get out there and and flat track now with people opening up classes like the hooligan class. It's so awesome. And then of course, hell on wheels. I don't think they're getting enough. Uh, really, they're not getting enough praise for what they do. They've been doing the hell on wheels flat track shit forever. And the hot August nights and stuff It's just, you go out there and there's n- almost no real flat trackers there. I mean, it's almost like the opposite where when you go to an Ivy league, it's all flat trackers. And then there's the hooligan class. When you go to the Hell on Wheels event, it's like all hooligans and then a couple of flat tracker classes. It's pretty sweet. So um, props to Roland Sands for teaming up with Ivy League and then getting the scout when the scout decided to um, donate those crusher motors to him, making some hooligan bikes out of it instead, and then taking it to the American Super Prestigio. I mean, I don't think we'd be seeing a Indian 
on the uh, flat track right now, being sank, getting their motors homologated by AMA if it wasn't for Roland Sands. So bravo, young man, and uh, bravo to everybody who's making um, and supporting racing right now. You can see what happens when you get um, people, you know, interested in it at a grassroots level. Now, let's get this shit taken care of on the road racing scene so we can get road racing back up. You know, we can get get Americans back into an international um, scene, get international eyes on them, and develop talent over here that's worthy of international competition. So, all right, enough about that. Let's move on to our crappy movie review. Episode 15's crappy movie review is 1967's Glory Stompers. All right, the Glory Stompers starring Dennis Hopper. You may see a trend here. Do you see where I was going with this, huh? Yeah. Hell's Angels on Wheels. Starring Jack Nicholson. Glorious Stompers. Starring Dennis Hopper. You may find yourself on the road to Easy Rider, which is an acclaimed, critically acclaimed and cult classic movie. How did Easy Rider escape the same fate as these B-movie bike exploitation flicks? Uh, well, I don't know, but it came two years after these movies were made. So maybe Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson got spied doing these movies, and they thought, hey, we can get them into Easy Rider. Man, they already are familiar with it. I'm going to go back and see what Peter Fonda was in pre-69. I remember he was in Dirty... I think he was in Dirty Larry, Crazy Mary. So maybe they thought, here's another crazy car guy, man. Let's get him an Easy Rider and make him an American icon. All right, enough about Easy Rider. We're here to talk about the Glorious Stompers. Glorious Stompers starts out uh, cool enough with the the Glorious Stompers having a little party, man, and enroll the Black Souls, and that's who Dennis Hopper is the leader of. So, are they bitter rivals? I wouldn't say they're bitter rivals, as uh, they don't even do anything to each other when they first meet at the beginning of the movie. But the tension is set high, baby. All right. After a while, um, let me see what happens in this movie, besides a bunch of other stuff that happened in every other movie I've reviewed so far. Yeah, there's the random bike scenes of them just riding candidly down the street and acting a fool. Um, yeah, there's the Nazi patches and the goofy army Nazi helmets. Yeah. Uh, there's the beards and, oh, this one doesn't have boobies either. Apparently they're getting classier and classier. Uh, maybe that's how they made the next step to, next logical step to Easy Rider. So what this movie does have is some rad action and fake blood. And I'll get to that in a second. So yeah, we find ourselves uh, hanging with the Glory Stompers. Those are the guys we want to root for through this movie, even though they're the baddies. We have this really annoying chick in a pink shirt. I don't even remember her name, but she is super annoying. From the way she talks to the way she runs through the bushes when being chased by a couple of baddies. Everything about this chick screams, ugh. So she wants her, uh, her man 
to get, I think his name's Daryl. What a, what a hardcore biker name. I'm Daryl. So she wants him to get straight, man. She doesn't want him being a glory stomper. She wants to settle down and have kids, you know, lead the life, man. Well, she doesn't say man because only bikers say man. And he says, hey, man, <laughs> how about we not do that? I mean, this is a perfect life. We live for free, right? All you need is a bedroll and a bike, mama. So anyway, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to uh, grow up. He wants to be a glory stomper for his whole life. So what happens is... Uh, while they're fighting over uh, what's cooler, being a square or a free bird, some black souls roll up on him. They get in a scuffle for some reason, and they call him a real mother. Yeah, you should hear the names they call. Uh, I mean, I guess this is right back in the time when cussing in books and film was uh, pretty much illegal, you know? If you said fuck in a movie, it was like hardcore, got like an X rating. So um, this is right after that happened. And uh, and uh, like the Lenny Bruce era, you know, it was all going down right around, right before this time. So, um, so they call him a mother lover and some other stuff. And it's like, whoa, man, that's harsh language for 67. Um, so anyway, they beat him up and they say they... <laughs> We wasted him, man. We wasted him. So what are they going to do with this girl? That's right. Keep her, uh, well, kidnap her and sell her in Mexico. So while they're planning on doing that, the rest of the movie happens. And I don't know how, but this guy goes from uh, everyone thinking he was dead and then uh, cinematic poetic timing. As soon as they rip out of there, he rolls out of the bushes perfectly fine don't tell me how they beat him within an inch of his life and he looks like he got a mild suntan uh, sunburn like okay so already you know you're starting to question the validity of this movie for reals bro so anyway so just like every other movie in this genre there's candid scenes of the bad guys riding around being idiots and i guess for that Part. There's, you know, random scenes of the good guys riding around being idiots. And there's always a party in these things. So, you know, the good guys and bad guys come together again at this party and they end up fighting. And uh, so what happens is toward the end of the movie, um, I forget the, guy, the, the glory stomper guy's name, uh, Damon or Durant or something like that. He shows up at this party and uh, all of his buddies are there sleeping. Oh yeah, a couple of black souls rolled through here and and uh yeah, man, they were they were really close to here. So uh basically, you know, they are they know they're hot on their tail. And uh what happens is let's skip to the end of the movie because that's the part I like the best. It's the part that lets me know that the torture of watching this movie is almost over. So uh, I, I kind of don't even remember how we get to this point, but pretty soon uh, the 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 girl escapes somehow, and um, she's running away from the Black Souls MC, and she's out hiding in this old mining town. This all looks like it was filmed out by um, from the party all the way to the uh, the final scene. Looks like it was filmed out in. Um, well, the party scene looks like it was filmed in Santiago Canyon, which is where Born Free takes place. And then the final scenes kind of look like they were taken 
out in like the old mining parts out in the desert, kind of near Joshua Tree, which is like another hipster, uh, SoCal hipster oasis. So pretty amazing that this 40-year-old film hits all the uh, hipster places that are still very bike-oriented today. So the final scene uh, features Magoo, who is this big, burly, um, pretty buff biker from the Black Souls, and he rides off with the girl, the girl who is annoying to me, the Glory Stompers gal, and Clean Cut, who is the leader of the Black Souls' brother, is going after him because it was his responsibility to take care of her in the first place. And I don't know if I ever said his name, but Chino is the leader of the Black Souls, played by Dennis Hopper. And I don't know what Chino's girl's name is, but she's a total spaz, and she has this fetish for knives. So the final scene ends like this. Magoo and the girl are riding off through the desert with clean-cut chasing after him. Magoo gets off the bike and kind of hides to throw a rock in front of Clean Cut's bike, kind of like an ambush. So when Clean Cut rides by, all of a sudden this bike hits his, or this rock hits his wheels, and he falls off and gets trapped under his bike. His leg's pinned, and he's pretty hurt. So Magoo takes the opportunity to uh, run over him, not unlike the old days where you would bury a cat and go over him with a lawnmower. I never did this, but I heard horror stories so anyway magoo takes the pinned clean cut and runs over him a couple times and while he's doing this and and laughing about it the girl the glory stomper girl runs off into the wilderness right about this time chino shows up sees what magoo's done pops magoo with a revolver a couple times and then the uh glory stompers show up and they're looking for their girl they can't find her and he starts uh, wrestling with Chino. And as he's fighting with Chino, Chino's girl whips out her stiletto. And when she can't find the glory stomper girl to take off an inch of her ear, she goes back down and sees Chino fighting with, I don't know, Damon, Durant, whatever the, whatever the glory stomper's name is. And she throws her knife and it misses and hits Chino right in the neck. End of film. Thank flipping God. All right. Don't watch this movie, and uh, I don't know how this led up to Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson being into Easy Rider, but it somehow it did um, really kicked off their careers as eccentric uh, actors and got their feet in the door for uh, what I think is a... I, Roger Ebert gave Easy Rider four out of four stars. Um, so I don't know. Somehow it became a cult classic and escaped the pigeonholing that all these other kind of bike exploitation films uh, of the same era got. So, all right. I think it's time to end this uh, show. <clears throat> all right, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this show. Sorry for being so late. I truly do apologize. I did not feel well. I started recording this last week on Thursday, which is when I normally start, release them on Fridays, usually Friday or Saturday. And man, it is Monday. I was out of town. Uh, I was feeling like a dog turd. And so I did not get this out. So my apologies to you. First and foremost, apologies to you, huh? Uh, The staff, writers, producers, and uh, editors at Creative Writing would also like to apologize to the following. The El Nino, Double Dragon, Vampires, The Hurt Report, Russia. I'm going to apologize to those 
MCCs if I pronounce their names wrong right now, including the Pirates MCC, Broken Bones MCC, and Nuntime Mortis MCC. Apparently they go by MCC instead of just MC over in England or UK. All right, let's continue our apology list with apologies to Motion Pro, YouTube, zip ties, tires, any sort of lubricant, the Price is Right game show. What the hell does that say? Sweet chops? Oh, sweatshops. Sorry, sweatshops. The Two Enthusiasts podcast, Clinton Wilson, Jensen Beeler, GSXRs, Harley Davidson, We'd like to apologize to Los Angeles, the EPA, or Environmental Protection Agency. We'd like to apologize to the Fast and Furious, SEMA, Victory Motorcycles, Bramo Motorcycles. Our apologies to Eric Buell Racing and Eric Buell, Liquid Asset Partners, America. Apologies go out to Paul Smith, Roland Sands, MV Agusta, Bimota Motorcycles, Nikki Hayden, Indian Motorcycles, Apologies to the Ivy League Flat Track, It's Not Four League Flat Track, Apologies to Hell on Wheels and Dennis Hopper, Rest in Peace, you were one of the good ones. Alright everybody, thanks for hanging out with us, and until next time, keep your stank behind a tank. Goodbye. There are several companies company hot hot yeah baby hot all right well since i made them noises you know i'm gonna edit this baby out oh yeah taco sauce <laughs> yeah. read somewhere that i said we start out with um your butthole and we end up with your slut hole yeah i don't know what it is but i'm pretty sure it was that because uh, I almost fell down the stairs um, and checking out how to change your motorcycle tire, but that's just a quick, brief uh, rundown of it. Events. The other night, trying to go up because my head was just throbbing. I couldn't even breathe. Detour. To. And it just felt like I had cotton. BW bought a nearly 20,000. Sorry. I'm going to apologize to these clubs right now if I pronounce their club name wrong. But those clubs included shoved into my uh, every sinus cavity that I have. <laughs> and yeah, pounding headache. And I, I couldn't sleep well that night. Oh yeah, taco sauce.